Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 87, The Comforts of Power. It is a big episode today as we journey from the Sinai to the Sudan, from the throne room to the deserts, and cover the entirety of the reign of Thutmose IV, King of Egypt. As with all of the longer episodes, this one is divided up into chapters of approximately 20 minutes in order to better fit your schedule. Ready? Let's begin. The year was 1416 BCE, and in the land of Egypt, all was well. The great pharaoh had won a victory in foreign lands, and now a peace treaty had secured safety and stability for the empire. Warriors were returning home. Soon, the king of the Nile would be home as well. The pharaoh of Egypt was Men Keperu Rei, aka Enduring Other Forms of Rei. We know him better as Tutmose IV. At just 20 years of age, this young king was proving to be an effective monarch. With more than a little justification, he could now call himself the Heka Nebet Kasut, aka the ruler of all foreign lands. Within a few years, he would prove that title once again. Now though, it was time for a short rest. The king returned to his palace, and courtiers and officials greeted him in state. Trumpets blew loud, pipes played joyfully, the dancing girls were out in number. Settling down for a moment of quiet, the pharaoh was content. We don't know anything of Tutmose's palace or home, sadly. It has yet to emerge from the sands. But we do know a little bit about his furnishings, because remarkably, the throne of this pharaoh survives today. If you visit the Metropolitan Museum of Art, you may accidentally walk past an item of great importance. I don't blame you, to the casual eye it is a bit nondescript. It is a wooden panel split down the middle held together by a modern frame. On one side it has images of gods sitting together, nice and traditional. On the other side, it has something else. This small wooden panel features a remarkable scene. It shows our king, Thutmose IV, claiming victory over his enemies. But the king does not appear in his normal guise. No, he appears as a giant sphinx. Thutmose appears with the body of a lion, the wings of an eagle, and the head of a man. He wears the royal headdress, and around his head, various hieroglyphs proclaim his powers. Beneath his feet, his enemies lie in heaps on the ground. Tutmose tramples them, and asserts the might of Egypt for all to see. Naturally, he sports a rather satisfied grin while he does this. Yikes. Above the king, a falcon, Horus, surveys the battlefield. The hieroglyphs accompanying this scene are fragmented, but they would have said something along the lines of, quote, Lord of the two lands, Men Keperu Rei, son of Rei, Tutmose, the lord of might and action, who tramples all foreign lands. Once upon a time, this throne was covered in gold, pretty similar to the famous throne of King Tutankhamun. But while that later chair showed the king at relaxation with his wife, this one is from a more austere and aggressive generation. No scenes of palace life for Tutmos. His propaganda 
was all about the conquest. Totmos's choice of imagery is pretty significant, not just because it proclaims his victories, but because of the particular symbol that he chose to use. Identifying himself as a great sphinx was an incredibly unsubtle reference to the story he used to gain power. After all, as a prince, Totmos claimed to have been visited by the great sphinx in a dream, and he used that supposed oracle to propel himself onto the throne. Well, now his throne itself made the connection so obvious, so blindingly in your face, that we might as well call Tutmos King Sphinx. It's really the biggest thing that he's known for. The throne of Tutmos IV is really quite beautiful. It was discovered in the king's tomb in 1903, and came to the Metropolitan Museum at the bequest of one Theodore M. Davis, a wealthy American dilettante. But it wasn't found by Mr. Davis, it was found by his employee, an up-and-coming archaeologist tasked with exploring the tomb. That employee? A young Howard Carter, destined to be the discoverer of an even more ornate tomb and a more ornate throne, the relics of King Tutankhamun. I find it fitting that the thrones of Tutmos IV and Tutankhamun, two of the only royal seats ever found in situ, were discovered by the same man. Naturally, Mr. Carter documented and preserved the items with methodical care and the attention that became his hallmark. Today, the fragmentary throne of Tutmos IV is a gorgeous addition to the historical record. So, Pharaoh sat upon his throne and enjoyed the comforts of power. Around him, the members of the court and the royal family tasted the fruits of their authority. Perhaps it is time that we met that family. Men Keperu Rey had many wives and many children. We have already met one of them, a princess from Mesopotamia named Henut Empet. She came from the kingdom of Mitanni as part of a peace agreement between great empires. But apart from her role in the great political events, the princess was really a bit of a non-entity. So we have greater ladies to meet. There were many powerful women at the Egyptian court. The most powerful, the great lady so to speak, was the king's mother. In this day and age, the wives were secondary, as the pharaohs promoted their life-givers above all others. Thutmose IV was no different. Allow me to reintroduce the great lady Tia. Tia, whose name literally means the great, had made it through the period of strife before Thutmose became king and now her gamble had paid off, she was reaping the rewards of her faith. As you can imagine, these rewards came in the form of status and wealth. A record of Queen Tia suggests that the king, her son, set her up in some style. For instance, a carved stealer from Giza records that the queen's estate was to receive, quote, everything which goes forth before Atum Horakti, this shall belong to Tia, the hereditary princess, great of favours, great of charm, sweet of love, mistress of the two lands and of all people. End quote. The stealer records the idea that offerings given to the god Atom Horakti, that is the Sphinx, would subsequently be redistributed to the estates of the queen mother. In other words, she was taking a portion of the religious wealth of the kingdom. As you can imagine, she was rolling in it. Even with Tia dominating the family, Tutmos still needed wives. 
Like every pharaoh, he had several. Let's meet two of them. Tutmose's most politically valuable wife was a lady named Iaret. Iaret, sometimes called Wadjet, was the king's sister, and as you'd expect of a sibling, she filled a slightly different role than your standard wife. As we'll see throughout this episode, Iaret was at the very forefront of Tutmose's propaganda and public image. She appears with him in art, hieroglyphs, and even in the records of foreign expeditions. So she's going to show up repeatedly throughout this episode. For now, I'll just say that Iaret is one to keep in the back of your mind. Finally, there was the third wife. Iaret held the status, Tia held the power, but another woman held Tutmose's heart. As far as we can tell, the king's great love, his paramour, was a woman named Nefret Iri. Nefret Iri, or the beautiful one comes forth, aka Nefertari, was a minor wife in the political sense, but in terms of bonding, she was closer to the pharaoh than any other. Nefret Iri held Tutmose's heart and produced many of his firstborn children. Now we'll meet some of those children later. What's important right now is how highly Tutmose seems to have valued his relationship with Nefret Iri. Nefret Iri appears with her husband on a whole range of carved stelae. These show her worshipping before the gods, and I'm not talking minor gods, I'm talking the big ones. The queen appears before Atum, Amun-Re, Mut, Ptah, and Sokar, local gods and national gods, gods of the utmost importance to the kingdom. Nefret Iri appears before all of them, giving her an incredible prominence in the religious life of the court. It seems that Pharaoh loved her very much. So those are the great women of the royal family during the early years of Tutmose IV. Menkeperu Re, like other rulers of Dynasty 18, was surrounded by prominent and powerful women. They wielded political influence and economic clout, and they took charge of events within the reign. As we'll see throughout this episode, they made quite a large impact. So the empire was peaceful, the court was obedient. In the halls of the royal apartments, powerful women kept the family and the kingdom in check. With such strong foundations, Tutmose's reign was starting off very well. Now that he had been on the throne for a couple of years, it was time for the king to start promoting his name throughout the land. He had done some work at Giza on the Sphinx, but there were many more communities needing his royal attention. In short, it was time for Pharaoh to build some monuments. Menkeperu Re is known for three monuments above all. Firstly, there is his tomb, which is amazing, and we'll explore that at the end of the episode. Secondly, an elaborate but mysterious addition to Karnak, which we will see in chapter 2. Finally, Tutmose is known for building the largest obelisk ever erected in ancient Egypt. Like most kings of the past few decades, Tutmose IV commissioned a new obelisk for the Temple of Karnak. Unusually though, this one comes with a wonderful story of its construction attached. But to tell that story, we need to take a visit to Rome. Standing in the centre of Rome's Vatican City, 
the holy centre of the Catholic Church, there is an Egyptian obelisk carved in the days of Thutmose IV. How did it get there? Once upon a time, a mighty pharaoh named Thutmose III commissioned an obelisk for a temple. This would be a mighty obelisk indeed, and it would adorn the entranceway to the great sanctuary of Karnak, home of the god Amun. But Thutmose III died before the obelisk could be completed, and then for more than 30 years it lay abandoned. Unfinished, a monument only to unfulfilled ambition. That is, until a new pharaoh arose, the grandson of this Thutmose, who shared his name. This was the great Horus Menkeperu Re. He was a strong king, made in the image of his father and grandfather. He would complete the obelisk. He would place it in its rightful home of Karnak. Thutmose IV started work on the obelisk once again. And within a few years, this mighty piece rose up in front of Amun's great temple. Capped with gold, it dazzled the eye, a beacon of his majesty's power, power like that of the sun god. On each side, sacred texts proclaimed the splendour of the king, and his piety, so that all who read it would know Thutmose IV was great indeed. Quote, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, beloved of the gods, whose beauty the divine council adores, who aids Re in the day bark, who adores Atum in the night bark, the lord of the two lands, Menkeperu Re, who embellishes Thebes forever. It is the son of Re, Tutmose, Kakau, who erected this obelisk in Karnak, its capstone being made of electrum. Its beauties illuminated Thebes, it being inscribed in the name of his father, the good god Thutmose III. The king of Upper and Lower Egypt, lord of the two lands, Menkeperu Re, beloved of Re, did this in order to cause that the name of the father might remain enduring in the house of Amun-Re. The son of Re, Thutmose Kakau, given life, did it for him. The obelisk was a monument of Thutmose IV, but he dedicated it in the name of himself and his grandfather. It was to be a mighty edifice, a testament to filial piety, to sons who honour their fathers. It was an obelisk for the ages. Time passed and kingdoms fell, but the obelisk remained mighty and enduring. It watched as royal lineages passed away, as empires faded. Pharaohs disappeared, foreigners took over the land. In time, the obelisk even witnessed the birth of new gods, including one who could rival even Amun in the strength of his cult. So it was that the obelisk of Thutmose IV witnessed the birth of Christianity and the coming of the Roman emperors. 330 years after the birth of this strange Christian god, an emperor came to Egypt. His name was Constantine, and he came as close as any emperor ever did to rivalling the mighty pharaohs for splendour. Although the emperors were but a poor shadow of the Egyptians, they were sensible enough to recognise their inferiority. And so Constantine, in all his might, decided that his city would be nothing if it did not host this mighty obelisk. 
Constantine ordered that the obelisk of Tutmos the Fourth be taken to a new home, a city being built in his name in a faraway land. His workers obeyed, and they hauled the obelisk to the river Nile, where it was loaded onto a barge and taken to the great city of Alexandria. There it was prepared, so that one day it could grace the city called Constantinople. Like all emperors though, Constantine failed to complete a project which the pharaohs could have done in a day. The obelisk lay in Alexandria for years, unmoving, silent, a monument once again to ambition unfulfilled. Twenty-five years after Constantine, his son, Constantius II, took up the task once more. His workers loaded the obelisk onto a ship at last, and bore it away to a distant city. To Constantinople? No, to Rome, a city that was once the Roman equivalent of Thebes, the mightiest city in the world. Now, Rome was in decline, but Constantius II hoped that this Egyptian monument would inspire his people to new glory. The obelisk of Menkeperu Rey, Tutmos IV, came to the city of Rome in 357 CE. There it was erected in the great Circus Maximus, to watch over cheering crowds and racing charioteers. More importantly, we are told that Constantius erected the obelisk in the name of Sol, the Roman god of the sun. Which is too beautifully fitting, to the point that you could, if so inclined, read the Egyptian text as follows. Quote, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, beloved of the Sun God, whose beauty the Divine Council adore, who propitiates Sol in the Daybark, who adores Jupiter in the Nightbark, the lord of the two lands, Menkeperu Rey, who embellishes Thebes forever. Indeed, it was his majesty who completed and decorated the very great obelisk which his father, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Tutmose III, had brought. His Majesty found this obelisk, it having completed thirty-five years lying on its side, in the hands of the artisans on the southern side of Karnak. My father commanded that I erect it for him, for I am his son and his protector. He made as his monument for the great father Amun, erecting for him the very great obelisk at the door of Karnak, opposite Thebes. The son of Sol, beloved of him, Menkeperu-Re, given life, beloved of Amun-Re, lord of the thrones of the two lands, lord of the sky. So once again, the obelisk of Menkeperu-Re came to stand in an imperial city, towering over the faithful in the name of the sun. It remains there today. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. 
We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Chapter 2 In regnal year 4, Men Keperure Tutmose IV took a trip to Thebes. From his palace at Memphis, the king boarded a ship for the southern city. Joining him, the queen mother Tia and the royal wife Iaret, his sister, came along for the ride. Tutmose travelled on the royal vessel, an ornate ship with a large cabin for the king and queens to relax on the journey. It was built of cedar wood and richly decorated, its sails bright and colourful. This royal ship was perhaps named Seba-em-Men-Nefer, aka the Star in Memphis. We know of two ships in the time of Tutmose IV that were plying the waterways of the Nile. One was named for Memphis, and one was named for Thebes. If you had to pick the vessel that the king was sailing on, it's a good bet that it was the Memphite one. The star in Memphis was a typical vessel, and it was probably propelled by a combination of sails and rowing power. To either side, long oars gave it momentum against the current, while a small sail helped to catch the breeze. Travel was slow, of course, but the crew dedicated themselves to their task, and before too long, Tutmose and his family were stepping onto the jetties of the southern city. It may have been many years since the king visited Thebes. We're not sure when that great obelisk was erected, so there's a good chance that Menkeperure's journey to the holy city in year 4 was his first during his reign. If it was, then it's quite possible that he had not been here since childhood. The king, queen mother, and the royal wife stepped off their ship and into the realm of Amun-Re. Before them, mighty pylons and obelisks of Karnak towered overhead, proclaiming to all the supremacy of the Theban god. It was a god whom Tutmos had come to honour. I could give you an exhaustive list of all the embellishments which Menkeperure made to the temple of Karnak, but most of them are pretty minor. A few cosmetic additions, a new shrine for the divine statue, and some modifications to the temple of Luxor just down the road. Only fragments of these various works survive, and some of them are merely names on a papyrus. But one structure does survive in some detail, and the remains of this reveal some fascinating elements of the king's public image. Apart from the Lateran obelisk, Tutmose IV's big contribution to Karnak was a new ceremonial courtyard, made to host and celebrate great festivals. Typically, we now call this the Festival Courtyard of the King. Let me show you around. First up, the court was ringed with towering pillars, square-shaped and decorated on all sides. The walls behind the pillars were also decorated, and these are the scenes which survive today, giving us a glimpse of the court's once fabulous decoration. The festival court of Tutmose IV was, as you would expect, largely decorated with scenes of worship, but there was also a variety of wonderful images showing the preparations for great festivals. 
The surviving pieces show that there were scenes of cattle being brought to the temple, livestock being butchered for consumption. There were also offering bearers carrying wine for the party and oil for the gods, vases and jewellery for the treasuries. They also showed the pharaoh making offerings to Amun himself, to Montu the war god, and to the Ka or spirit of eternal kingship. These decorations were rich in detail and elaborate in composition. The artists, I think, really outdid themselves on this one. We can assume that the king commissioned most of this in consultation with his mother. Queen Mother Tia, the great lady, seems to have had some input on the whole affair. We know this because she appears in the painted scenes as an active participant in the temple's construction. One of the decorations from Tutmose's festival court shows the king helping to lay the foundations for the new monument. This was an important ceremony which consecrated the ground and prepared the space for construction. It was traditionally done by a pharaoh, but Tutmose is not alone in these scenes. Instead, Tia appears alongside him, helping to perform the ceremony of foundation. Together, the two conduct a ritual which we know as the stretching of the cord. Basically, each one of them held one end of a rope, which they dipped in red ink and then laid on the ground. They pressed this rope along each side of the space, a symbolic act which marked the boundaries of the new structure. This was a key part of any construction. The fact that Tia helped Tutmos to do it is testament to her incredible prominence in the court. So these immortal scenes gave Tutmos and his mother a firm place in the iconography of Karnak Temple. They were ornate decorations, and I'm sure the king spared no expense. Unfortunately, the festival court did not last very long. None other than Tutmos's own son eventually deconstructed it as part of his own remodeling projects in this part of Karnak. Talk about an ungrateful child, right? Yeesh. Fortunately, that son did take the consideration to use the blocks from the temple as part of the foundations and inner structure of his new works. So, when archaeologists were able to access the interior of things like the great pylons, they found these stones intact. So, today we can get a sense of what the festival court might have looked like. I have added some images of a digital reconstruction on the podcast website. Pharaoh completed his work at Karnak, perhaps celebrating a festival while he was there, and then he returned to Memphis. There is a general cliché that the pharaohs spent all their time in Thebes, but this is actually incorrect. Available evidence suggests that at least before the 19th dynasty, and even then, most rulers spent the majority of their days governing from the north. Thebes, although receiving lavish construction projects and being the centre of royal burial, remained only secondary in terms of actual government. By and large, the Theban and southern communities were left in the care of government officials. Men like the vizier or the high priest of Amun, and the various overseers of the police or the buildings. Pharaoh spent his days at Memphis. So Menkeperu Rey made his contributions to Karnak, offered praise to the great gods, and then went home. It would be another four years before he returned to the city of Amun. 
Two more years passed without anything of particular noteworthiness happening. So we'll fast forward slightly, down to regnal year 7. In about 1411 BCE, Tutmose IV was sitting at the heart of a secure kingdom. All was well in the land of the Nile, nothing much to report. But there was still work to be done. Around this time, Tutmose organised a mining expedition to visit the Sinai Peninsula. Now he had already sent a small one back in year 4, and I'll cover this in a supplementary episode. The expedition in year 7 was a lot more important, not just because it was probably quite a bit larger, but also because of who went along. Usually, these expeditions were done by government officials of one sort or another. Sinai was no longer the sort of area that required direct, personal attention from the crown. Strangely, Tutmose IV now bucked this trend, and the new expedition was led by his wife. Queen Iaret, Tutmose's sister, shows up unexpectedly in the Sinai Peninsula in Regnal Year 7. Her name appears at the entrance to a mine, and it seems that she went out there with the specific purpose of opening a new source of materials. Iaret went to Sinai in order to access two resources. These were copper and turquoise. The copper was used in making tools and in manufacturing bronze. The turquoise was used for everything from jewellery to paint. Both of these materials were incredibly valuable, and both of them were highly prized. That being said, copper and turquoise were now sort of middle class, not too hard to access if you could afford them. They were no longer a prominent part of royal imagery. Pharaohs had access to gold and silver, and they were using bronze for artwork rather than luxury accessories. So the Sinai hadn't really demanded royal attention so much. As long as it was productive, the workers could be left to their own devices. Which begs the questions, why open a new mine, and why send the queen? The basic answer to both of those questions is that Tutmose wanted to increase the supply of copper coming into the Nile Valley. The more complex answer is that the pharaoh may have been responding to something of a logistics crisis affecting the copper trade at this time. Apart from the Sinai, most of 18th dynasty Egypt's copper came from the island of Cyprus. Cyprus, or Kupros, or copper in Greek, is the main source of copper at this point in time. But by the reign of Totmose IV, it seems like Cyprus wasn't sending quite as much copper as before. Why was this? Well, the main trading peoples were the Minoans from Crete. Now, the Minoans had been incredibly rich and incredibly influential about a hundred years ago. Nowadays, they were suffering a serious dip in their economic fortunes. By the late 15th century, many of the coastal communities of Crete had been destroyed by earthquakes or raiders. Even the majestic Knossos was struggling to maintain relevance in a changing world. As a result, the famous Minoan sea traders may have been disappearing around this time. If this is the case, then the trade route between Crete, Cyprus, and Egypt may have become a shadow of its former self. From the Cretan misfortune, Egyptians needed a replacement source. There is a hint of this happening in the Egyptian archaeological record. It's nothing concrete, it's just a coincidence, but perhaps a revealing one. 
Around the same time that the Minoans of Crete were diminishing, the city of Peru Nefer in the delta was also disappearing. The Egyptians had been maintaining Peru Nefer in great style and with great expense for many decades. Now they seem to have been using it less and less. So you have to wonder, was Peru Nefer declining in importance precisely because the Minoans were no longer quite the economic force they had once been? Now this is just an idea, the Egyptologists have not quite put together a conclusive theory. But you have to wonder, the Minoans of Crete were disappearing, and around the same time Peru Nefer begins to diminish in importance. Were the two connected? It's certainly possible. Finally, although this one is a guess on my part, it may be that trade between Egypt and the Mediterranean was being interrupted by the rise of a new power. In central Anatolia, now Turkey, the Hittite kingdom was experiencing a period of rapid growth and expansion. It's entirely possible that the Hittites were starting to gobble up eastern Mediterranean trade, drawing in the copper and bronze for their weapons. If so, well, the Egyptians probably found that trade was diminishing to a trickle. Only the stuff that came to Syria or Lebanon would have made it to the Nile Valley. So all things considered, it seems like the copper supply was draining off a bit. Egyptian demand, meanwhile, was as high as ever. And so, deciding perhaps that they could no longer rely on the seaborne trade, the Egyptians did what they had always done. They doubled down on the Sinai Peninsula and went back to mining country. Make Sinai great again? Hmm, there is a parallel. So Queen Iaret was sent out with an expedition to the Sinai Peninsula. Along the way, she left a valuable testimony to royal activity at the copper mines. Good work. But it does seem odd to send one of Egypt's queens on a mission that really any minor official could do. So why did Iaret go? The answer to that question is complicated, but fascinating. It has to do with the role of the queens in this time and the specific goddess whom the Egyptians considered the ruler of Sinai. By now, I've probably mentioned the goddess Hathor a lot. Hathor was a big deal. For about 2,000 years of Egyptian history, she was the archetypal feminine deity, an avatar of female fertility, majesty, and violence. She was also the patron goddess of the Sinai Peninsula. Near the very heart of mining country, at a place called Serbet al-Kadim, a large temple to the goddess Hathor had taken root. This cult space had been here since way back. I think I spoke about it in episode 3? Yeah, it's old. For whatever reason, Hathor had been worshipped by the very earliest miners in the Sinai. Now, in 1411 BCE, a good 1500 years after the first expeditions, the majestic rulers of the New Kingdom continued that tradition. Queen Iaret and other queens of the 18th dynasty were heavily associated with Hathor in the royal propaganda. It seems that they took an especially prominent role in the cults of female deities, and represented the king in worship of the goddesses. As part of the general trend of the day, in which pharaohs curtailed their queen's political power, it seems as though the royal ladies made a horizontal career step, and instead became powerful representatives of the female gods. Now, Queen Iaret was doing the same, for the goddess Hathor out in Sinai. 
So although the journey was hot, long, and uncomfortable, Iaret appears in the desert of the peninsula, opening a mine and worshipping Hathor. Great stuff, you have to hand it to her. Returning to the Nile Valley soon after, Iaret found her star at the court was rising. Pretty soon, she was going to be the most important player in her husband's life. How did this happen? Well, for that, we must return to the south. In 1411 BCE, Regnal Year 7, Men Keperu Rey and his sister wife Iaret travelled once again to the southern portions of Egypt. As they did, they embarked on one of the more curious affairs from this king's reign. The royal couple arrived at Thebes and made offerings to the gods, as you'd expect. They also inspected the mortuary temple and tomb of the king, which were now well underway. We'll see those in a later chapter. It wasn't long before they left Thebes once more. This time, you see, they were heading further south, up the Nile River, in order to make a tour of the southern provinces. Along the way, the king commissioned a monument to mark the occasion. This monument survives, and it reveals some wonderful details. At the city of Canosso, the king of Egypt erected a stone stealer showing himself in the traditional act of smiting Egypt's enemies. He grasps an enemy warrior by the hair and raises a mace, preparing to strike a killing blow. This smiting scene asserted the power of the pharaoh and the preservation of the natural order. Egypt stays strong, chaotic enemies perish. Classic imagery, which Tutmos used happily. Standing behind the king on the stealer, watching the execution, is the great lady Iaret. She stands in a typical pose, straight and tall, watching the king at his work. But in a strange twist, the iconography of the queen is somewhat different. She wears a crown, which is normal, and carries a fly whisk or flail, which is also quite typical. In her other hand though, she carries a large mace. The queen bears a weapon of war, standing and watching the pharaoh as he decapitates his enemies. It almost suggests that she, like him, bears the power of military force and is a defender of the natural order. Now, whether this is to be taken literally, in the sense that Iaret executed prisoners, is probably just a guess. But the fact that the she appears with this symbolism, that is quite powerful. It seems that somewhere along the line, Iaret had risen the ranks of the court hierarchy and was now in a supremely powerful position within the court. This is only certified by the fact that above the queen, hieroglyphs in a cartouche proclaim Iaret to be the Chemet Nesut Weret, aka the Great Royal Wife. Now, you may remember that the Great Royal Wife was a position currently being given to Tia. Iaret, it seems, had somehow supplanted Tia and taken the position of great royal wife for herself. Now, how this happened is uncertain. Where was the Queen Mother exactly? Well, we don't actually know. The most likely answer is that Tia may have passed away sometime around year 7 or just before. When? How? It's unknown. Was there any foul play? Again, that's unknown. 
The Queen Mother was probably in late middle age, and any kind of illness could easily have carried her off, so there's not necessarily any proof that Iaret removed her. We also don't actually know much about the Queen Mother's body because her mummy has not survived. Her tomb is also not found. Simply put, Queen Tia disappeared sometime around year 6. Soon after, Iaret rose to her former position. So the Canosso Stela perhaps commemorates one of the moments when Iaret came to the forefront of political power. The Stela is not dedicated to her and it's not about her in any way, but the fact that she appears as she does with weapons of war and bearing the title of great royal wife suggests that maybe year 7 was the moment when Iaret finally became the great queen of Egypt. She remained this until her husband's death. Now I'm not actually done with Queen Tia. Although she departs our historical narrative at this point, we are going to see her again. On a supplemental episode coming soon, we're going to explore her life at the royal palace and what we know of her environment. So, although she's departing for now, she is not forgotten. Tia will be back. The Canosso Stela proclaimed the power of Tutmos IV and his military vigour. It was a valuable piece of propaganda, and this far south, it was a good warning to any who might think to challenge Tutmos's authority. There were more of those potential enemies than you may expect. Chapter 3 The year was 1410 BCE. Pharaoh was in the southern regions of Egypt on a mission of goodwill. But before too long, he found himself engaged in a bit more warfare than he might have expected. While he was in the south, the Pharaoh received word of trouble on the border. It seems that enemies from Nubia were raiding Egyptian possessions and disrupting the proper stability of the region. What followed was one of the more interesting little fights in the 18th dynasty. In regnal year 8, word came that the desert roads east of the Nile Valley were being attacked by warriors from the Bedouin tribes. Out there, far from the settled valley, the hills to the east were no longer safe. Tutmos responded in force. The Egyptians maintained several routes from the Nile Valley down into the eastern desert. Some of these went toward the Red Sea coast, but most of them went into the hills. Why? Well, out there, the Egyptians were mining gold. The deserts of eastern Nubia, or Sudan, were rich in the yellow metal, and since the earliest days of the Old Kingdom, the Egyptians had sought to control that wealth for themselves. Going out into the desert was a perilous journey, and not just because of the heat. Out there, mining expeditions could be isolated and, if unlucky, attacked by the nomad groups who lived in the region. These nomads, who live in this part of the world even today, were a periodic menace to the security of the realm. So when Tutmos received word that the gold supply was under threat, he immediately ordered a mustering of the troops. Tutmos set out from the town of Edfu, heading east. 
With him, he took his bodyguard, an elite corps of charioteers and foot soldiers who were known as the Neferu. The Neferu, or champions, seem to have been ancient Egypt's only full-time soldiers. They were warriors who trained and served regularly, rather than being levied when it was time for a campaign. When Pharaoh needed to respond to a situation quickly, the Neferu were always the first port of call for gathering the needed force. We've actually met the Neferu before, back in the days of Tutmose III. There, I characterised them as the king's bodyguard of sorts. Well, they seem to have been serving that king's grandson in exactly the same capacity. So, let's welcome the Neferu back to the story, along with their signature catchphrase. Awesome. So Tutmose and his mighty bodyguard headed out on campaign against the Bedouin of the eastern deserts. Let me set the scene. Tutmose and his warriors were heading into the Desheret, aka the Red Land. It was harsh and unforgiving, but it was also incredibly profitable. Nothing could be allowed to mess with the flow of gold. That need was so important that Pharaoh was here in person. Tutmose and his men made their way into the desert. Behind them, the green of the Nile Valley dwindled and then disappeared. Ahead, the sun bore down on a burnt landscape, hellish to those who do not know it. Unfortunately for the Egyptians, their enemy knew it very well. Tutmose and his warriors were going up against the Bedouin tribes of eastern Sudan. Now the Egyptians called them Ta-Nehesi, or the Nubians, which used to confuse scholars into thinking that this was a war in Nubia. But thanks to Betsy M. Bryan, foremost scholar on Tutmose IV, we now know that the campaign was actually in the eastern desert. It was around the area of Nubia, but not the same place that previous kings had gone. Tutmose was not waging an invasion. Anyway, the king's record of this fight survives pretty much complete, and it gives us a lovely narrative. So I'm going to let the king speak for himself without interrupting except to clarify terms. So, Tutmose's war against the Nubians. Here we go. Year 8, month 3 of the planting season, day 2. Now his majesty was in the southern city at the quay of Karnak, his two arms being clean in divine purity. He propitiated his father Amun as he was given eternity as king forever, enduring upon the throne of Horus. Then one came to speak to his majesty, saying, The Nehesi or Nubian has descended from the vicinity of Wawat, and he has planned rebellion against Egypt, collecting for himself all of the foreigners and rebels of that country. The king, his majesty, made a petition in the presence of the ruler of the gods, Amun, consulting him concerning the condition of this. Then Amun informed him what would happen, showing to him the way upon the road in order to do what his spirit desired, like the words of a father to his son in whom he had produced his offspring. The king went forth from Amun's sanctuary, his heart being joyful, and he commanded that his army be collected immediately. He sent off in valiance and strength. Proceeding after this, his majesty went in order to overthrow the one who attacked him in Tar Seti, the land of Nubia, he being brave in his golden ship like Ray when he places himself in the night bark. 
His sails were filled with bright red and green linen, and spans of horses and troops were accompanying him. His army was with him, the champions were in two rows, with the elite troops at his side, and the boats were equipped with his retainers. The king went south like Orion, making Upper Egypt gleam with his beauty. Husbands shouted through love of him, and women became excited at the news of his passing. The great god Montu in Armant protected his limbs, Nesret conducted before him, and every god of the southern region bore a bouquet for his nose. Nekbet, the white one, affixed the insignia of my majesty, her two arms being around the scepter of dominion. She bound for me the nine enemies entirely. Then the good god, Tutmos, went forth like Montu in all of his forms, adorned with his weapons of combat, raging like Seth. Ray was behind him, always without darkness upon the mountains. There was only one companion from his retinue. Without waiting for his army, Tutmos made a great carnage among the enemy with his powerful Kepesh sword. His terror entered into every belly of the enemy, Ray having placed his fear in the lands like Sakmet in the year of her destruction. He was vigilant, not sleeping while he trod the eastern desert. The king opened the road, just like the southern jackal, seeking the region of him who had attacked him. Tutmos found all the enemies belonging to the Nehesi in a hidden valley which was unknown. They were concealed from the people who trod the mountains and lands distant from what was normally travelled. Then Tutmos captured all of the townspeople and removed them together with their relatives, their cattle, and all their possessions." End quote. The enemy scattered against the speed and fury of Pharaoh's mighty arms. He laid waste to the warriors, took the families and livestock captive, and proclaimed a great victory. With the spoils of war gathered up by the troops, Tutmos and his warriors turned back towards the Nile Valley. They didn't quite go the way they had come. Instead, they headed for the region of Elephantine at the southern border. It seems that Tutmos's campaign took him far enough south that returning via Elephantine and boarding a boat there was more sensible. The effect was that while responding to a raid, the king simultaneously managed to complete his tour of the southern provinces. Kind of an accident, but still, silver linings. This was a good day. Returning to Thebes, Tutmos celebrated his victory in style. It wasn't often that a pharaoh made a campaign against such an unusual foe. Tutmos commemorated this in great detail. I opened this episode with a look at Tutmos's personal throne an elegantly carved piece of furniture that was discovered in his tomb. That throne showed Tutmos as a sphinx, raging on the battlefield, triumphant over his enemies. Well, that throne is not the only place that such imagery plays out. One of the other noteworthy relics from Tutmos's tomb are the pieces of the king's chariot. His war cart, which carried him at high speed across desert sands and among enemy arrows, survives today. Well, parts of it survive, but those parts are absolutely beautiful, and I'm a little bit giddy just talking about them. Tutmose's chariot is quite similar to his throne, in the sense that it shows the king, as a sphinx, triumphing over his enemies. 
but it also shows him in his chariot, riding headlong and firing arrows into chaotic masses of fallen foes. In both scenes, gods watch protectively, and divine symbols surround the king, granting him strength and safety in the fight against disorder. Powerful symbols for the ancients, Tutmos used them lavishly. The decoration of this chariot, though, wasn't just about symbols. It also included a sort of list of all of the enemies over whom he was triumphant. Each of these enemies appeared in person with their various countries of origin listed against them. So, on the chariot of the king, we get a record of the Nubians against whom he went into battle. We see African men of various types and costumes, with captions like Keri, Miu, Ermer, and Gulreses. These are tribes of the Kushite and Nubian regions. On another list, we see Asiatic men with their distinct costumes, and regional captions like Naharina or Matani, Tunipa, Tunip, Shasu, Bedouin, and finally Kadeshi, men of Kadesh. Again, a list of various foes whom Tutmos had crushed, symbolically, with his victories. The chariot is a living monument to the pharaoh's power and his people's once overwhelming military might. It is a fantastic piece of art. So Tutmos completed his second campaign of victory. Maybe it wasn't such a grand or majestic campaign, but still, the king valued it and considered it a mighty addition to his legacy. He commemorated it in art, and this art found its way onto furniture that he used daily, or onto his personal weapons of war. The king Tutmos IV may not have been the greatest warrior in the 18th dynasty, but he certainly upheld the tradition handsomely. He would not have been considered a weak pharaoh by any standards. So, Tutmos IV returned to Thebes in victory, bringing with him plunder and captives in great number. The king had now ensured that his military legacy was secure. He began to turn his attention now to his political legacy. Now, as we know, every pharaoh has two basic goals in their reign. One is to achieve great power and victory before the gods, and the other is to ensure that their name and mummy survive forever. So, now that the king was back in Thebes, it was time for him to turn his attention towards his house of eternity. At Thebes, the king needed to go and inspect his mortuary temple, and, of course, his tomb in the Valley of the Kings. After the break, we'll explore the monuments of this king and his personal life during the later years of his rule. See you in a moment. Chapter 3 the year was 1410 BCE, regnal year 8 of Tutmose IV. The king was in the city of Thebes, having won a campaign against enemies to the south. He had secured the routes to the gold mines of the desert, and, even better, brought back a train of captives and livestock who struggled in his wake, and now would find themselves serving the pharaoh. While in Thebes, Tutmos received some welcome personal news. One of his wives up in the harem at the Fayum had produced a new son. 
The new prince was named Amunhotep, and he was healthy and strong like his father. As you perhaps could guess, this boy was going to wind up becoming the next heir to the throne. The little prince's mother was a lady named Mut Emwia. Mut Emwia means the goddess Mut is in her boat, referencing the great mother deity who was a wife to Amun-Re at Karnak. Mut was a goddess whom Tutmos IV had honoured himself back in the day. How fortuitous then that Mut Emwia should produce a healthy baby boy for him while he was in Thebes. Given her name, it is almost certain that Mut Emwia was a lady from the south but it is quite possible that she was, in fact, a Nubian. According to art historian Ariel P. Kotslov, the fragmentary remains of Mut Emwia in statues suggest that the queen may have had distinctly Negro features. If this is correct, then Mut Emwia is one of the first Nubian queens we've been able to see in the record since the days of the 12th dynasty. So that's awesome. And even better, that would make Prince Amunhotep half Nubian. The fact that he later became pharaoh is even better. Tutmose was pleased that a new son had been born. By this point in his reign, several of his older children had passed away prematurely, leaving the succession a little bit uncertain. Now there was more confidence. With Prince Amunhotep being cared for by Mut Emwia and others, the legacy of the king was more secure. Tutmose now turned to the other element of his legacy, the eternal part. West of Thebes, artisans and builders were hard at work on the pharaoh's tomb. They were also working on an elaborate mortuary temple, close to the Nile. This temple was meant to propitiate the pharaoh's name and ensure that his spirit or ka was sustained with offerings forevermore. These mortuary temples were incredibly important. Tutmose, naturally, went to inspect his. The mortuary temple of Tutmose IV is mostly gone today. A small piece of the original structure survives, and the foundations have been excavated. But overall, it's been cannibalised for other buildings over the centuries, so there's not a lot to say. What we do know is that the temple was reasonably large, with two sizeable pylons marking the entrance. It was also designed with three terraces on the inside. You know, exactly like the great temple of Hatshepsut, which was just up the road. There were also large courtyards, colonnades, and small shrines to gods like Amun or Min. The temple was ornate, with various artworks and texts proclaiming the majesty of the god. Naturally, it also spoke of how he endowed the temple with offerings and estates to make it last forever. One of the most interesting parts of this temple, in my view, is a surviving text which records how the king organised the economic support for the temple. Now I realise some people hear the word economics and immediately tune out, but hear me out. You see, Tutmose didn't just provide land and workers, Tutmose provided his temple with slaves. I spoke about Egyptian slaves, or servants depending on your translation, back in episode 79. Well, the practice shows up pretty clearly here. Tutmose proclaimed to all how he, quote, settled the enclosure of Menkeperure, aka the mortuary temple, with the Kushites who were defeated, 
they whom his majesty had brought back from his victories. End quote. In other words, Totmos took the captives from his war in the deserts of the east and, describing them as Cushites or Nubians, settled the people at his mortuary temple. They would be captive workers in his name. This is pretty explicit, one of the rare moments when a pharaoh gives us what we need to say, yes, the Egyptians were using captive workers here, and we can prove it. Of course, the text may just be symbolic, but I'm going to take Tutmos at his word on this one. Apart from the settlement of captive workers, the mortuary temple doesn't tell us much that is noteworthy. Still, it was valuable to Tutmos, and the offerings which came here would supply his car with nourishment and energy in the next world. I'm sure he was very proud of his temple. He would be even more proud of his tomb. By 1410 BCE, the sepulchre of the king was mostly complete. Tucked away in the Valley of the Kings, workers had finished the architectural design and most of the excavation. Now it just needed the decorations, but those would not be done until the king passed away. For now, Tutmos came to view the structure. Pharaoh, his attendants and his bodyguard made their way up the Valley of the Kings. Standing at the doorway to the tomb was a man, a very excited man. This was the architect of the king, and he was eager to show off his work. Tutmos's tomb architect was the royal builder Ka. We've met Ka before when he designed the fabulous tomb of Amunhotep II. Remember that two-level effect? That was Ka. He was kind of a big deal in the architectural community. Ka had innovated for Amunhotep. Now he iterated, building on his earlier work and perfecting some of his earlier designs. As we'll see, the tomb of Tutmos IV really shows the refinement which Ka was developing. For those interested, the tomb of Tutmos IV is numbered KV43 in modern Egyptology. It sits in a southeastern corner of the Valley of the Kings. It is southeast to the tomb of his father, and northeast to that of his grandfather. So if you look at a map oriented north, the three tombs are arranged in a roughly equilateral triangle. Which may be significant, or it may not. Either way, I think it's cute. Naturally, being a pharaoh of Egypt, Tutmos wanted to outdo his father and grandfather wherever possible. So the tomb of this king is essentially the same as his predecessors, but in every conceivable way, it is larger. KV43 covers an area of more than 400 square meters, which is a substantial increase over his father's tomb. It went further into the earth and had higher ceilings and spaces. Finally, just to make the point, its sarcophagus was much larger than that of the earlier rulers. Which is ironic, because Tutmos IV was quite a bit shorter than his father. The mummy of Menkeperure was discovered in the late 1800s in the burial chamber of Amunhotep II. In episode 84b, we saw the discovery of a secret cache, royal mummies reburied in Amunhotep's tomb to protect them from Thebes. Well, Tutmos IV was part of that cache. His mummy had been removed from his tomb and reburied for safety. So thankfully it survives today, and we can tell a lot about the king. As I said, Tutmos IV was a lot shorter than his dad. Amunhotep II had been a good six feet tall in life. 
Tutmos was just five foot four. Maybe that's why he went for a much larger monument. Maybe he was just grandiose. Either way, he's one of the typical body types of the day. Short, slender, and, according to the early 20th century anatomist who examined him, rather <clears throat> effeminate. As far as I can tell, this just means slender and clean-shaven, but I guess that's the Edwardian era for you. Anyway, there's not a heck of a lot to say about the architecture of the tomb. Compared to others of the 18th dynasty, it's really just the same, but with a bit more space. Granted, there is one significant change. The tomb of Thutmose IV took the next step on the L-shaped monuments of its predecessors. It dug further into the earth until it was more of a corkscrew shape. This may have been to better utilise the space, or it may have been intended to make the tomb seem even more underworldish than it already was. Either way, it was the next phase in Ka's ongoing iterations of the royal tomb design. Again, it set a template for the next generation. So that's the architecture of the tomb. Where things really get interesting is in the decoration. Tomb painting up until now had been quite austere, or at least stylized. Walls were painted to look like papyrus books, and figures were made in stick figure to show that they were drawn on a page. Amonhotep II had made a leap by including more fleshed out individuals, but they were still a sort of black and white outline, not too much detail. On top of these features, earlier tombs had a bare minimum of colour. Any colour that was there was mostly used on ceilings or freezers around the borders of rooms. Thutmose IV and his artists changed that forever. The tomb of Thutmose was the first royal tomb to be decorated with fully coloured individuals. Every man, god, and goddess that appears is brightly coloured, with elaborate detailing done in various hues. It's a style that we call polychromatic, versus the hieratic of earlier tombs. The effect is one of vitality and life, kind of like comparing black and white film to Technicolor. Everything suddenly seems so much more varied and alive. You know that moment in The Wizard of Oz where Dorothy steps out of her house into Munchkinland? Kinda like that. Figures all but leap off the walls of Tutmose's tomb. The king is surrounded by vitality. Words obviously can't do the images justice, so I recommend looking to the podcast website. There you'll see a range of the different gods and goddesses who appear, and the wonderful frescoes which coloured the walls and ceilings. Tutmose's chambers had roofs painted with stars, and the upper portions of the chambers were decorated with richly coloured patterns. Check it out. Thutmose pronounced himself satisfied with the work on his tomb and temple. Ka was overjoyed. The king then returned home. From here, the records of his reign dry up, and we are left with a blank space up until the time of the king's death. So, it's time for a fast-forward and the inevitable moment. Thutmose IV died around May of 1400 BCE. He was 36 years old and had ruled Egypt for about 18 years. Wait, what? Where did we get 18? Last we heard from him, he was only on the throne for about 9 or 10. Well, to be honest, 
All of the dates for Thutmose IV's later reign are a complete mystery. We actually don't know how long Thutmose ruled for. The chronology of this particular reign is vague, even by ancient Egyptian standards. The last we hear from the king is the record of his military action in the south in year 8. After that, it's a blank. But different scholars have arrived at some wildly different chronologies for the king, even though they're all working from basically the same materials. The minimalists say that Tutmos ruled at most about 10 years, because why would we have such a big gap? But some give him anywhere from 20 to even 33 years on the throne. Now only one of these dates can be the truth, so how do we know? The first stop is the ancient historians, the Greeks and the Jewish commentators. Manetho, for instance, gives Tutmos nine years and eight months. It's nice and succinct, and it seems to agree with the inscriptions that we have. But two records which might be connected with Tutmos give dates for years 19 and 20. So there's already a question mark lasting for about 10 years. Additionally, some scholars have noted that Tutmos IV constructed, or at least planned, buildings at Karnak for his said festival. Assuming he wasn't just thinking really far ahead, we would normally guess that the said festival was meant to mark a reign of about 30 years or so in length. So some scholars have given Tutmos a good 35 years of rule. As you can imagine, this has made my job more than a little frustrating. We can also look at the king's mummy to try and get a sense of how old he was when he died. But even that does not provide much help. The early anatomical studies gave him an age of about 25, which is way too young. Subsequent studies pushed that up to 35, which is more plausible. He could even have been as old as 40 by the time he died. So that really doesn't give us much help. Tutmos could have come to the throne later and ruled for 10 years, or he could have come to the throne earlier and ruled for 20. Simply put, Tutmos's mummy is really unhelpful. Now all of this may seem very academic, and it is. What is our conclusion in general? How do we get some finality? On the available evidence, and looking at his mummy and the vagueness around what the records actually are, I decided to give Tutmos a slightly longer reign of approximately 18 to 19 years. Normally I would be conservative and give him about 10 years, but in this case I'm really quite stuck. Every scholar will have slightly different chronologies depending on their assessment of the available evidence. Add that up together and you can get some really variant dates for when a pharaoh reigned. Normally this isn't such a big deal, but in the case of Tutmos IV, different sources will give him dates ranging from 1420 down to 1390 BCE, and that has all kinds of consequences for how we arrange our history down the line. So I'm in a catch-22. If I give him a shorter reign, I might be out in one sense. If I give him a longer reign, I might be out in another sense. I decided to take the middle road and just give him a reign of about 20 years. This might be too long, it might conceivably be too short. Realistically, we don't have enough information. So as far as the History of Egypt podcast is concerned, Tutmos IV reigned for approximately 18 or 19 years, give or take. With that in mind, we need to come towards our conclusion. The year is now 1400 BCE, approximately May. Sadly, the great Horus Menkeperure Tutmos IV is now dead. 
his legacy is going to live forever. But what was Tutmose's legacy? The king had the shortest reign of any monarch for the past century. What kind of testament did he leave behind him? Well, Tutmose sits at an interesting place in the 18th dynasty. The great conquests were in the past, and an era of peace was beginning. But peace takes time to reap rewards, and Tutmose did not live long enough for that. Which leaves his legacy in an unfortunate position. By all rights, he should get a lot of credit for the golden age which was about to hit Egyptian society. But because he is sandwiched between more notable names, he doesn't get the recognition that he should. Now I'm not saying that Thutmose IV was a hidden gem or some kind of forgotten wonder, but I am saying that when we forget about him or focus on the larger-than-life figures in his immediate family, we do ourselves a disservice. If we forget Thutmose, we miss an essential piece of the puzzle and look in the wrong places to explain great events. For my money, Menkeperure Thutmose IV had a powerful place in the developments of Egyptian society. Over the next couple of episodes, I am going to prove this idea. As we reach the end of Thutmose IV's reign, we reach a chapter break in the history of the 18th dynasty. Now I'm not making that up. Egyptologists actually divide the dynasty into two halves. One half is dominated by the warrior kings of the earlier period, and the other is dominated by the eccentrics of the later dynasty. Thutmose IV's reign, or at least the end of it, is marked as the end of the first phase. So there has never been a better time for us to pause the narrative for a few episodes and take some time to look beneath the surface of royal society. Let's strip away the propaganda of victories and majesty, and look at what the evidence actually tells us. Egyptian society around 1400 BCE was evolving in some very visible ways. I want to take a couple of episodes to explore that, what it means, and how we know about it. So, join me soon for a few episodes of Behind the Scenes of Pharaonic Egypt, as we take a deep dive into 18th dynasty society, daily life, and perhaps most importantly, religion. Big things are happening. I want to explore them. See you soon. One final note. As you may be aware, the History of Egypt podcast now features advertising on the occasional episode. There is a point to this. I am acutely aware that the podcast has never quite reached the ideal one episode every week format, which you all deserve. Hopefully, a bit of occasional advertising will facilitate that, but I still need your assistance. To help the show grow and allow me to devote more time to it, Pharaoh needs assistance. Whether in the form of iTunes reviews, sharing on social media, or yes, an occasional donation, every little bit helps. If you have a few minutes to review us, or share us, or a dollar to send to the book fund, please consider assisting. With luck, 2018 is going to be the year that I finally meet that weekly target. Your help is most appreciated. Thank you. <laughs>